Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. Happy Mother's Day, of course. Uh, you know, we are very thankful for mothers. When I saw my mother this morning, I told her Happy Mother's Day. And then I said, you're welcome. Because without me, none of this will be possible. Of course, Happy Mother's Day to my wife. And again, you're welcome. Without me, none of this will be possible. And so as you can see, you're welcome. But now it's Mother's Day is a wonderful day to reflect on the, the beauty of motherhood. Uh, we are thankful for every mother that is here. And if you, uh, you, know, you get a chance, give your mom a call, tell her you're welcome. But of course, Mother's Day is not easy for all. There are, of course, uh, many people that are going to be here today. Uh, who do not have good relationships with their mothers, or you have biological realities in your life that prevent you from being a mother. And of course, what I want to tell you is that you are, uh, you know, you are wonderful the way that God made you, but also any void that you feel in your life, God fills through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what can be a trying day uh, for many women I want you to understand that when you come to Jesus Christ, He promises through His death and through His resurrection that He will make you whole and He has made you whole and you are His child and He values you greatly. Uh, and with the providence of God, we find ourselves in Matthew 23 today on Mother's Day where we will begin talking about the seven woes. Uh, well, you know, if it was Mother-in-Law's Day, maybe that would be fitting. <laughs> Wow. Some of you clearly have baggage by your response to that. I know how to fix it. My mother-in-law's on the other side of the country, so it's, it's pretty easy for me, I tell you. Happy Mother's Day. All right. For the past few months, we've been going through Matthew 21 and 22, and if you've been with us, uh, you, know, you know where we are. If you haven't been with us, let me catch you up just a little bit. In those two chapters, Jesus engages in a discourse, a very tense discourse with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, the chief priests, and the thieves that were in the temple. And in Matthew 23, Jesus changes the tone a bit where it ceases to be a discourse and begins to be a monologue in which he gives in response to everything that he talked about in Matthew 21 and 22, warning his disciples and warning the crowds around him why they need to avoid living as the Pharisees and all of the religious leaders in Israel in that day were living. And the narrative shifts in which Jesus gives what can be in our age a controversial uh, warning against false teachers with specificity. And the example, though, that Jesus offers in this text is a forceful denunciation with specific warnings against these men that everyone would have known because they were the ones that had been in this dialogue, in this discourse, in this conflict with Jesus for these two chapters. And right in front of them and everyone else, Jesus looks specifically to them and gives the harshest rejection, and we'll see that towards the end of this sermon, in the language that Jesus could have given. We live in a current age where many crave the acceptance of the culture around us, and even those that deny the truth of the gospel, 
This gives us a dire warning against synergizing with those very people. Jesus seeks to proactively shepherd his disciples in this moment by warning against specific cultural leaders that offer false teachings that will ultimately lead people away from Jesus if he allows it to continue without any denunciation. And so this section, as I said, offers seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees, and we're going to look at two of those woes this morning. But verses 1 through 12 serve as a foundation of all seven woes, where he gives a very good explanation as to why his tone is so harsh against these religious leaders. And I want to begin reading, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And so what I want to do is I want to break these texts up and talk about each section as we enter into it. But number one this morning, I want to be very clear, hypocrisy does not negate the truth. Hypocrisy does not negate truth. And so Jesus gives us a very clear separation here. He talks about the authority that the Pharisees have, and then he talks about the authority that the Word of God has. When he talks about Moses' seat, he is specifically pointing to the law of God as given through the prophet, priest, king model, Moses, in the Old Testament. And he's very clear to draw a line in the sand. He's saying, do not negate the truth of God's word that came through Moses because of the hypocrisy of the Sadducees, of the Pharisees, of the Herodians, of the scribes, of all of the religious leaders in our day. And he roots this in something that we've been talking about all through this series, is that he roots everything in an objective standard that you should anchor your life in and be immovable regardless of what anyone does, regardless of what anyone says. But beyond that, regardless of even if those entrusted in leadership fail to lead as God has ordained that they should lead. So many people walk away from the church of Jesus Christ, from faith in Jesus Christ, and they say, I can't follow Jesus because of the hypocrisy in the church. They will walk away from the salvation given in Jesus Christ because of how disappointing people are. Because people sin. Because people sin against people. Because people do hurtful things that leave scars, that give us chips on our shoulders, that give us baggage that we have a difficult time getting through. And many people will walk away from objective truth that God has formed reality itself around because of the sin of another person. Don't do that. Never, ever do that. I've been in the church of Jesus Christ my entire life. I cannot remember a day where I did not know the name of Jesus, where I was not taught that Jesus is God, where I've not been involved in church at an extremely committed way. I was the president of my youth group for crying out loud, all right? We actually had that in my church. To this day, I have no idea why, and I have no idea what I even was, 
but my name was on a plaque, friends, all right? And so I have walked through the church my entire life. When I was a young kid, I would ride a bus every Saturday inviting people to come to church. I sang in the children's choir. I've literally been in the church all of my life, coming to faith in Jesus Christ at the age of 12. But I will tell you, if you have a person that's disappointed you in the church, I probably have five. I have been sinned against. I have had my feelings hurt. I have had my life hurt. I've been lied about. I've been lied to. I've seen people sin greatly. I've seen pastors sin against entire congregations in very immoral ways. I have been disappointed by people over and over and over again to the point where people sometimes ask me, why are you still there? And I will say, because I committed at a young age, I will not root my hope in other people. My hope is anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. My true north from a very young age has been defined by the word of God. That is where you root your hope. That is where you root your allegiance. That is what you give your commitment to. And when you do that, friends, I will tell you, people are going to sin. People are going to disappoint you. But when they do, it will not lead you to walk away from the truth because your life is not anchored in an expectation that other people cannot live up to. The original language is ordered in such a way as to note the authority of the seat of Moses over the authority of those that sat themselves in that seat. What Jesus is saying is, yes, there are false leaders in that seat, but that does not change the truth of God's word. And so even when a sinful Pharisee, whom Jesus will reveal later, did not have faith in him, was not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. When he says, when they sit in that seat and read the law of God to you, understand that their sin does not nullify the truth of the law of God. And that culture to invoke Moses was always understood as another way of stating the authority of God's law. Psalms 19.7 puts it this way. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Note that he doesn't say that the people are perfect. Note that he doesn't point to a person and say, that person revives your soul. He doesn't say the testimony of people is sure, which is another word for certain. No, he says the law of God. He says the testimony of God. He even says, you do not have to be a genius to understand this. It is the wisdom of God that lifts the simplest of people to have ultimate wisdom in their lives. And so you're not getting this from a person. You're getting this from the law of God. That is why Jesus with certainty could say, trust the word. Don't always trust the messenger. I'm in the office of pastor, but the office is greater than I am. Do not root your hope in me. Do not look, and if I disappoint you in some way, say, I'll never trust another pastor again. I am not the ultimate example of being a pastor. The Word of God and what it says about pastors is the ultimate example. 
I've worked my entire life to not be disappointing. I've tried with everything that I have to not sin against people from this office. But understand, I also realize I'm a human being. I'm given to temptation just like anyone else is. So I always leave room with people and I say, if you are here because you value me, I will disappoint you. The word of God will never disappoint you. The gospel of Jesus Christ will never disappoint you. So if you're in here to worship Jesus Christ, you're in a great place. And my advice to you, anchor your hope, your fidelity, your commitment, your trust in the word of God, which gives us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And don't put it anywhere else. Because I will tell you one thing from my vantage point, this room is filled with rotten sinners. All right. All three services are going to be filled with rotten sinners this morning. And rotten sinners are disappointing. Sinners hurt your feelings. Sinners will break your trust. But Jesus Christ will never do it. Discipleship then, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, must be rooted in God's authority, not man's authority. Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul speaks to this very issue where he says, much in every way, verse 2, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So he's saying the nation of Israel, all of these people, they were given the word of God. They were given the law of God. But then look at verse 3. Verse 3 and the question that the Apostle Paul asked is possibly where your relationship and your trust in other people and if you've been hurt, if you've been disappointed, it is probably the most important question you'll ever ask yourself. The Apostle Paul writes Romans 3, verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? He says, they had the law. So what do you do with the reality that there are unfaithful people who have the word of God? He asks them another question. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? He says, by no means. In the original language, is meganoito. That is the strongest renunciation that exists in the Greek language. What that means is, heaven forbid, it means it's not even in the realm of possibility. Don't even consider that that could be true. The faithlessness of sinful man does not and cannot nullify the faithfulness of God. And he makes an important statement, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. He says, every single person in this world can lie to you, but God never will. Every single person in this world can disappoint you, but God never will. If you anchor your trust in God, he will always live up to the standard. I've been told so many times that the greatest problem in the church of Jesus Christ today is hypocrisy. And I agree that it is a problem but I do not believe it is the greatest problem because I believe a greater problem is people putting their trust in the wrong people and not putting their trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, you will not endure in Christianity. You will not endure in the church if you root your faith in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though everyone lies to you, Jesus never will. Though everyone turns their back on you, Jesus never will. Though everyone gives you false hope, Jesus never will. Why, though, is hypocrisy a problem? Because people are sinful and people can fake even faith in God. 
And so the answer to that is not to point the finger and say, see, you're the problem. You're the reason I don't believe. That's not the answer. The answer is don't build your ultimate trust in humanity. Build it on the truth of God. If you throw a rock into a large crowd, nine times out of ten, you're going to hit a rotten person. It's going to be awful. Isn't going to be trustworthy. So I'll warn you. You put your hope in people, I'm giving it a 90% chance of them disappointing you. That's the reality of the effect of sin in soul and society. But the perfection of Scripture will never disappoint you. And so that's why Jesus says that here. That's why he echoes it through the Apostle Paul to tell us that God will always be true even in a world filled with with liars. But Jesus continues. I want you to look back to verse 4. He says, those Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Everyone knows what that is. Don't need to even explain it. Oh, no, you don't? Okay, we'll get back to that. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They loved the applause of the crowd. Number two this morning, friend, I need you to understand that you need to seek to love rather than to be called loving. You need to seek to love rather than to be called loving. Many of the problems that we have in our age are rooted in this distinct problem. And it's the same problem that the Pharisees had, is that they would rather have the applause of the crowd than to stand firm in their faith. They were more interested in someone looking to them and saying, according to culture, according to what we currently think, according to the rules that we've made up, you are a loving person rather than doing the loving thing in every circumstance, which by the way, if you do the loving thing in every circumstance, you will not always be popular. You won't. It's no accident that Matthew 23 falls directly after what Jesus says in the great commandment in his final conflict and the final question that they asked him where Jesus explains, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he immediately shifts into a monologue to explain why the Pharisees cannot be trusted with defining what love is Because when you seek to be seen by others, when you build a life wanting to be valued by other people, wanting to be popular in the crowd, wanting to have the prestige of the culture around you, it will build your value of love, not on defining what love actually is, but to be thought of as loving based on the standard of the moment. As why in our society we call it loving to accept the murder of infants. It's why the abortion mills go untested by so many people. It's why we're now calling it loving to consider the mutilation of five-year-old genitals. Because we love the applause of man and we are afraid of being rejected by the crowds. 
But when you root your definition of love by the standards that God gives us, we cannot help but define love by the absolute standard of reality that we find in God's law. And it is an immovable definition of love that demands that even when society at large rejects the standards of God and heinous evil Radical evil takes over in soul and society to the extent where we believe that man can become woman, woman can become man or something else. Where we give our children at the altar of Moloch to be killed in the abortion mills. We're trepid to stand against it. We seek some kind of compromise so that we don't stand out too much in the culture to which when you have a true north defining love, you at times have to be willing to be called unloving. Because a sinful world cannot define love because they have no objective standard. And so what are they forced to do? They're forced to do the same thing the Pharisees did. They keep moving the goalposts. They keep redefining it by whatever comes their way. And so why at times am I willing to say things where people do take issue with my tone? And the reason is because harsh sins require harsh words. And we must root our definition of what the loving thing to do in God's law, and we must be unwilling to move it. When you love the approval of man, you will compromise in order to get it. You will redefine God's word in order to get it. Hypocrisy, though, is rooted in the worship of self. Because you cannot hold yourself to be God and meet those standards because you are not God. So you, even if unwittingly, force yourself into a place of hypocrisy when you seek to redefine the law of God. The Pharisees wanted love to be about them more than they wanted it to be about God and others, and that will always force you into a place of evil. Loving people will require you to do some things that are unpopular, but are ultimately for the good of others. To seek to be seen as loving is deceptive and ultimately causes you to hurt others because it is always going to be self-seeking. Jesus talked about this problem earlier in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 6, starting in verse 1, Jesus makes this statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpets before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Begs the question, if you don't during your quiet time, take a picture of the highlighting and the cup of coffee beside it and post it on Instagram, did you even have a quiet time? So that's an Instagram generation where we seek the likes on our social media page, where we want people to click those hearts on our Instagram page because if no one sees that I did it, how can I trust that I'm going to be rewarded? Jesus says that's the worship of self. 
That's the seeking of instant gratification. When God says trust that in the end He will give you eternal gratification. Eternal gratification is always superior to instant gratification, friends. And that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. They want it now. They want it here. They want it instantly. And they want it to come from other people. Because the very things that we put online show that we want the approval of humans more than we want the approval of God. Because when you seek only the approval and audience of God, it will lead you to unpopular destinations that many people will not like, but the Lord will give you eternity for. You have to value the praise of God more than you want the praise of man. Because the praise of man is rooted in what we talked about last week, that myth of autonomy. It's the lie that if I have power, I can control what the truth is. I can define myself what love is. It is about seeking, excuse me, stealing worship from God and giving it to yourself. There is no love in that. There is no kindness in what this world defines as kind and loving. It will claim love in doing people great harm. Now we claim that it is loving to aid children who have no idea what they're doing, always groomed by a perverted adult to do these things, to transition into a gender that God did not define for them. The kindness of God is always superior to the lies of the devil. You have to root yourself in that reality. You see, friends, the truth of your faith is always going to be revealed in how you live. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul in verse 32 makes an important statement about what loving kindness actually is. He makes this statement. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Now pause right there. That is where most people want it to stop. Because we then say, I know what kindness is, so I'll define that. I know what being tenderhearted is, so I will define that. I know what forgiveness is all about, so I will define that. And so kindness, tender hearts, forgiving natures becomes totally subjective to the definitions that we give to it. But God says, read the rest of the sentence. You don't have the freedom to do that. He then finishes the sentence. He says, as God in Christ forgave you. You will never know a greater kindness than the kindness of God. You will never have a more tender heart than the tender heart of Jesus Christ. And you will never have a more powerful forgiveness than the forgiveness that is only available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God does not leave us on an island to ourselves to define reality however we want. He's given us the natural law of His image everywhere, but then He has rooted it in the specific truths that are only available in Jesus Christ. Reality itself is rooted in the work of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees, though, wanted to be honored so they moved the goalposts in order to get the attention onto themselves rather than on God. These are the lies that we tell ourselves. We want to feel important. We want to feel noticed. We want to feel valued. I hear that all the time. And then we say, we just want to build our self-esteem. Friend, you will never build a self-esteem worth having when you're trying to rob God of His glory. That 
desire of ultimacy for value, that desire of ultimacy for being noticed, that desire of ultimacy to be valued is us wanting to be God. You are not God. But friend, do you want love? Do you want kindness? You'll never find it in yourself. You will only ever find it in Christ. Love demands some hard but true things to be said sometimes. But friends, it's never a hard thing for the sake of your own reputation. It is a kind and loving thing because it is rooted in the truth of God for the sake of saving lives. Number three this morning, false teachers are liars. False teachers are liars. Not very winsome, is it? Some people might say, Steve, your tone is too harsh. How will false teachers feel loved if you talk to them that way? To which I go to the words of Jesus. In verse 8, Jesus says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So does Jesus have a problem with titles? No. Because Jesus himself was called a rabbi, even in human form. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is looking to them and rebuking these specific men saying, you don't deserve to be called rabbi. You don't deserve to be called instructor. You don't deserve any title that anyone gives you because your pride has exalted you to a place where you use your titles to give false teachings to the people around you. So yes, if you're going to call yourself rabbi and root your ultimate hope in the power that you wield to give false interpretations of the word of God to others, then yes, you having the term rabbi placed on you is a damnable offense. Don't call yourself an instructor if you market in lies about God. So as a father of three children, am I not to be called father? Well, if I inhabit that position so that I can be God, then no, you should not call me father. I'm a terrible excuse for a father. But if I understand that the role of father is something that was ordained by God so that I can represent the truth of his word directly from God the Father, then I'm not rooting my hope in being called father. I'm called father so that I can point to the great father, our Lord. See, friends, Jesus looks to these men and he says very, very harsh words saying you can't inhabit those offices because you are a hypocrite and you use it for your own fame and for your own power. In order to get glory for yourself, friends, you have to lie to people about God. And that is why the problem with false teachers isn't that they have a misunderstanding of what truth is. It isn't that they have unique interpretations of what Bible verses means. No, false teachers are always liars and they should always be treated as such. Because ultimately, all of those lies are rooted in pride. You either want to avoid admitting error, or you want to take the glory that doesn't belong to you. These men were false teachers that invented a theology and philosophy of lies to take authority for themselves that Jesus is saying only belongs to God. 
Humanity does not have the authority to change God's laws, and we certainly don't have the authority to create new ones. When you seek to pervert what God has made clear, you enter into a life of demonic lies. Friends, God has made safeguards to protect all of us from this. Look at what he says through Moses in Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. 18. He says, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. If you watch horse racing, they put little blinders on the sides of their eyes because if they don't, they're going to get distracted and they're going to run the wrong way. And what Jesus is, through the prophet Moses, is saying here is that when you look to the Word of God, use it to keep you from going to the right or going to the left because if you keep your focus on God's Word, you will always walk the straight line that God has designed you to walk. What these Pharisees had done is they had turned these blinders off and said, look to the right because we will redefine what God's word means. Look to the left so that we can redefine what God's word means so that we can steal the glory that only belongs to God. The phylacteries that they would put on were often these prayer boxes that they would bind to their head and it would be so tall because the taller your prayer box, the closer your prayers are to heaven. Or they would bind it around their arm and they would place prayers from the Torah into a box and they would use a leather strap to bind it around their forearm. And the tighter that they could hold it, the different color that their forearm would turn and it would prove their commitment to their prayers. And so they would say, I am holy because look at my arm. Look at how tight I have my prayers. To which Jesus looks at them and says, that's not a prayer to God. That's a prayer of pride. You have your reward. God doesn't look at that and see something that impresses him. He sees someone who's not seeking to give his heart to God. He's seeking to give his heart to himself because you're worshiping yourself. Problem wasn't that the Pharisees had a different interpretation. Problem was they were false teachers. And false teachers are just liars and should be marked as such. Lies must always be rejected. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, something even more harsh to the Pharisees. His tone is more unacceptable to those that would look at Jesus and always have Jesus have to be meek and mild, always have to be this nice little hippie who floats through the air, so gentle, so lowly that he would never say a hard word to anybody, so soft. But in John 8, we see Jesus, the warrior, when he looks to the Pharisees, the prevailing power in Israel of that day, and he said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot hear my, bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So you're not helping God, you're helping Satan. Why? Because they didn't have the truth. Just like Satan doesn't have the truth. And so Jesus says, you are as big of a liar as the devil, and you're so close to him, he's your father. Therefore, when you see false teaching inside and outside of the church of Jesus Christ, whether it is the prosperity gospel or whether it is critical race theory, reject and expose those lies. These are false religions 
The proponents of lies do not have God as father. They have Satan as their father. Do not seek a middle ground with liars. You don't want to curry favor with a liar. That's foolishness. Don't compromise to make them more comfortable. Follow the example of Jesus. Expose lies. Confront lies. The Apostle Paul calls it destroying arguments. It is the task of a follower of Jesus to make a liar look foolish so that no one will follow their lies. What's the ultimate reason? Number three this morning. Leading people away from Jesus is damnable. Jesus then gives two woes to these Pharisees. Here's what he says, starting in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, which means to convert someone to your religion. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's pretty harsh. Now, woe isn't something you say to a horse in this context. Okay? Woe literally means in the original language, you are damned. It's the literal meaning. Now, kids, Jesus isn't saying a cuss word. So don't make your mom bear that burden this afternoon on Mother's Day. Jesus is speaking to the condition of their souls. He's saying, you are condemned. What Jesus is saying is, you can't repent. Jesus is reprobating them to their faces. He is saying, you are damned. You will not come to faith in me. You are going to hell. Why would Jesus make such a statement? If you go back to verse 1, it says he turned to the crowds and his disciples. He was speaking in front of the Pharisees, but he was speaking to his followers. The shepherd must use harsh words to protect his flock from wolves. You don't negotiate with a wolf. You shoot the wolf. And Jesus is looking to his people and he's saying, if you follow the teachings of these people, you become twice the child of hell that they are. So what do you think your eternal destination will be? Jesus is concerned with the most important thing that he can think about, and that is the eternal destination of the crowds around him. He does not curry favor with liars because earthly pleasures are not Jesus' greatest concern. The reality that there is coming a day where all of these people will stand before Jesus in judgment, that is Jesus' great concern. And he looks to the crowd and remind us of Matthew chapter 7 where he says, there will be many who claim faith in me and I will look to them and say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. What Jesus is saying is, do you know who's going to hear that? The scribes and Pharisees. But I have to protect you from them. Friends, never give your life to lies. Those are harsh words, but the question must be, are they kind words? And I say, yes, they are. But how? Because Jesus is saving lives. The text tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
And sometimes to save people, you have to say hard things to people. Jesus is warning them not to follow them because the difference between truth and error must be clear. There are some things that are simply differences of opinion. I will admit that. There are disagreements on some things that do not hold heaven and hell in the balance. But the most difficult thing that a leader must do is an understanding how wrong can someone be before they lead people over a cliff that ruins their lives and costs them eternity. And I will say there is a tension, but there is a discernment necessary where we must draw the line to say, once you cross this line, you are not just wrong. You are satanic. And we have people, even in our culture, that we are so hesitant to label false teachers. And it is not because God wants us to be winsome. It is not because God wants us to have a strategy where we never say hard words to each other. It's because we are afraid of losing the applause of the crowd. It's because we are afraid culture will reject us. And I say, I would rather be rejected by the culture than have my children be damned. I fear the Lord more than I fear any man. And it is vital that people in our era understand that the Pharisees are not those that seek to hold faithfully the doctrines of Scripture who are just mean people. No, the Pharisees were false teachers seeking to pervert the truths of God with the doctrines of man, thus leading people away from the kingdom of heaven. Do not allow false teaching to continue in your presence. Expose lies every opportunity that you get. So the question in this tone, in this context must be, what will you choose in your life? Will you choose truth or will you choose error? Will you follow Jesus or will you build a life on lies that ends in damnation? Friends always choose Jesus Christ. He is a good shepherd. He is always loving. A few application points this morning. Trust God's word more than any human. Very simple, but very difficult in life. We are always tempted to give our affections to other people, our ultimate affections to other people. Don't do that. Secondly, do not forsake the truth of God because of the sin of others. Don't do it. People will disappoint you. Root your life in the Word of God and you will be able to endure in faith even in the face of great disappointment. Thirdly, there are times when love demands hard words of truth. Parents understand this because sometimes you have to say hard words to kids. But that extends far past parenthood. Sometimes you have to say hard words to false teachers to protect the flock of God. Number next, reject and expose lies. Reject and expose them. Sometimes it's not enough just to reject them. There are many times where you must seek to expose those lies, even when it's difficult. And then finally, lead people to the truth of Jesus. Always point past yourself to Jesus Christ. When you're certain that you're living your life like that, it creates a life that is above reproach because you know you're not stealing the fame of the Lord when you're always pointing to Him. And when you live your life like that, you're filling your life with the Word of God. And here's the deal. In the moments where you don't know if a line has been crossed, 
When you give your life wholly over to Jesus Christ, when you fill your mind with His Word, the Holy Spirit will use that to give you discernment to know when enough is enough, when culture has crossed that line. You can trust Him.